Section 9 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 7, Part 1. St. Theodora. From the most pious Irene we proceed, after a passing glance at the half-dozen empresses of less fame who come between them, to a notable empress whose memory has actually been enshrined in the list of the canonized. Byzantine piety has at times assumed such peculiar features in the course of our story that we will not leap to the conclusion that at length we reach a woman in whom modern taste will find a realization of its standards. The restoration of the images of the Virgin and the founding of monasteries were in those days arguments powerful enough to silence the importunities of the devil's advocate. Theodora will be found to have ways that the modern woman may or may not admire, but will assuredly not be encouraged to imitate. Yet it will be something to meet a powerful Byzantine empress whose hands are not stained with blood, and from her romantic elevation to her tragic fall, the story of St. Theodora will prove of no little interest. We have left Irene dying of a broken heart in her island prison, while the perfidious Nicephorus wantons on her wealth in the sacred palace. Since no wife is associated with him in the chronicles, it is not ours to determine whether he really was the sink of all the vices, as the ecclesiastical writers say, or whether his anti-clerical spirit and his refusal to persecute heretics have not loaded the scales against him. The example of Charlemagne, who maintained an imperial harem in the heart of Christendom, seems to have affected him. When he had commanded for his son Storasius one of those beauty shows by which the Byzantine court often selected a royal bride, and three blushing and beautiful maidens were presented for his final decision, he is said to have appropriated two of them and imposed the third on his son. The new empress Theophano was an Athenian girl, a relative of Irene but though she was not devoid of ambition, fate did not afford her the opportunity enjoyed by Irene. Nicephorus fell in war after a reign of nine years, and his skull, tastefully mounted in silver, became a favorite drinking cup of the king of Bulgaria. But his son Storasius was gravely wounded in the same battle, and was borne back to the city in a litter in a dangerous condition. Theophano, who was childless, saw the crown slipping from her hands as soon as she had obtained it. The emperor's sister, Procopia, was married to the chief governor of the palace, a very handsome, amiable, black-haired youth, not wanting in popularity, and the soldiers and senators whispered too loudly that he was fit to wear the purple. Storasius, from his sickbed, petulantly ordered that the bright eyes of Michael should be cut out, and that the imperial power should pass to Theophano. Within a few weeks the army turned upon its helpless sovereign, and lodged him in a monastery. Theophano passed from the palace to a nunnery, and lost the beautiful hair which had so recently helped to win her a throne. 
but it should be added for the credit of michael that he enabled her to soften the disappointment with all the comfort that a large fortune could afford a woman with sacred vows even more romance is packed into the brief story of the empress procopia rising with her father nicephorus from the level of court officials to the imperial rank she had married the handsome superintendent of the palace and had after a fortunate escape from the vindictiveness of her brother or of theophano been crowned mistress of the roman world in the gold-roofed triclinon on second october eight eleven to her the fates seemed to open a long and glorious career her husband had neither grit nor judgment, and she virtually undertook the administration of the empire. Unhappily, she illustrated in a fatal degree the proverbial subservience of women to priests and monks. The policy of Nicephorus was reversed. The church smiled under a shower of gold, while the heretics were lashed into sullen defiance in the provinces officers and nobles looked with disdain and irritation on this revival of clericalism and even concerted a plot to bring the eyeless sons of constantine the sixth to the throne from their distant priestly homes when in the year eight twelve procopia drove out at the head of the troops who were marching against the bulgarians the soldiers murmured and the simple-minded michael as a contemporary calls him was insulted and when, in the following spring, Michael, relying on his spiritual advisers for carnal warfare, was ignominiously beaten by the Bulgarians, the soldiers offered the crown to a vigorous Armenian officer and marched on the city. Thus, in less than two years, Procopia forfeited the power which, she believed, she had used so admirably her mild and timid husband returned to the capital to tell her that he proposed to resign and avoid a civil war she raged in vain at his pusillanimity the chroniclers tell us in particular that she dwelt with strong invective on the notion of this unlettered officer's wife appearing in the purple while they discussed the army reached constantinople and they fled with their children to a chapel in the palace grounds near the sea the end was ruthless and inevitable michael who was little feared was clothed with the monastic habit which befitted him and placed on one of the prince's islands in the sea of marmora from which so many kings and princes were to gaze upon the palace they had lost his elder son was castrated. Procopia was shorn and clothed with the hated black dress of a nun, and deprived of all her property. She lived for a few miserable years with her daughters in a convent on the fringe of the city. The Empress Theodosia, wife of Leo the Armenian, who now ascended the throne, hardly merited all the disdain with which Procopia had depicted her in the imperial robes she was the daughter of arcebaris an officer and patrician of such rank and culture that there had been an attempt to put him on the throne in the reign of nicephorus one of the chroniclers however speaks incidentally of leo's incestuous marriage and we may assume that there was something wrong in the connection it matters little as theodosia remains in complete obscurity during her husband's seven-year reign 
Only in the last week does she make her first and last appearance in history. In spite of a sincere desire to reform the empire, and the most energetic measures to purify and strengthen it, Leo became unpopular. Reformers were rarely popular at Constantinople, and Leo had the additional disadvantage of favoring the iconoclasts. When fiery monks denounced his maxim of universal toleration, he resorted to violence, and hands and feet began to fall under the axes of his soldiers. At last he discovered that the count of his guards, Michael, was at the head of a conspiracy, and he is said, many historians refuse to believe the statement, to have ordered that Michael be cast forthwith into the furnace which heated the baths of the palace. It was Christmas Eve, and the Empress was horrified to learn that the feast was to be desecrated in this way. As the soldiers conducted Michael through the palace, she rushed from her bed with flying locks and disordered dress, and fell upon Leo like a becante. He sullenly postponed the execution, muttering, "'You and the children will see what comes of keeping me from sin.' Michael was fettered and confined, and Leo retired with the key of the fetters in his breast. The unknown story of Theodosia, daughter of Arciberes, ends in a thrilling page of romance. Leo slept little, the fear that he had blundered tormenting him, and at last he went in the dead of night to the chamber in which Michael was confined, to his surprise he found Michael sleeping on the jailer's bed, instead of being chained to the wall. He retired to consider the matter, but it seems that he took no steps, and in the early morning he went to the chapel to chant matins with the clergy. Now a page, who had been lying in a corner of Michael's cell, had noticed the purple slippers of the man who had entered. He had once wakened Michael and his friendly jailer, and a message was hastily sent to friends in the city, threatening to betray them to Leo, if they did not deliver Michael at once. It was, as I said, the depth of winter. It was now Christmas morning, and a group of singers were to enter the palace in the early hours to join with Leo in singing the service. Leo had a resonant voice, of which he was very proud. With these singers, hooded and cloaked with fur, the conspirators mingled, and made their way to the chapel, concealing their swords. They stood perplexed in the dim and cold chapel, as Leo had drawn his fur hood over his head, and was unrecognizable, until at last his sonorous voice rang out, and their swords gleamed in the light of the lamp. Leo, a very powerful man, seized the cross and defended himself for a time, but soon fell dead to the ground. Theodosia was turned adrift in the desolate empire. Her four boys were castrated, one dying under the brutal mutilation, and Michael the Stammerer, instead of passing to the furnace, sat on the golden throne even before the fetters could be struck from his feet. The reign of Michael introduces us at length to the woman whose name stands at the head of this chapter. Michael was the son of a Phrygian peasant, knowing more about pigs and mules than about Greek letters, says the indignant chronicler, and had risen from the lowest rank of the army. He had in early years married the daughter of an officer, though we may smile at the legend that Thecla was bestowed upon him because some soothsayer had foretold his fortune. 
thecla had enjoyed a year or two of splendour and passed away leaving a son and daughter second marriages were not favoured by the clergy and monks and it is said that michael secretly arranged with the senators that they should press him to marry again but when we find that he married a nun we can hardly suppose that he was disposed to fear the clergy his second empress euphrosyne has made no mark in history yet she is interesting it will be remembered that twenty years earlier the son of irene had divorced his wife maria and sent her and her young daughters into a convent it was one of these daughters who after spending twenty years placid existence in a religious house during all the storms that had swept through the palace was recalled to the world relieved of her vows by the patriarch and married to the boorish michael after four or five years further enjoyment of the palace michael was carried off by dysentery and left the empire to euphrosyne and her stepson theophilus here begins the story of the sainted theodora and ends the brief visit of euphrosyne to the brighter world when theophilus ascended the throne in eight twenty nine he is said to have been a widower although still young the chroniclers persistently state that the youngest of his five daughters married one of his officers a few years after his accession and the only solution of this singular puzzle is said to be that an earlier wife had died and left him with several girls he was not at all events married when he was crowned in eight twenty nine and with the aid of euphrosyne he sought a consort once more matrimonial commissioners searched the city and the provinces and every father of a beautiful girl hastened to display her charms to the imperial examiners some writers would confine the scrutiny to the city of constantinople but the fact that theodora came from the distant province of paphlagonia confirms the statement of george the monk that the imperial commissioners travelled through all regions of the empire in search of a perfect bride the utmost that panegyric has been able to say of theodora's parents marinus and theoclista is that they were not ignoble we may assume that like the empress maria the mother of euphrosyne she was discovered in some obscure village of asia minor and conducted with fluttering heart to the court of the great king euphrosyne added a picturesque feature to the competition she arranged the elite of the candidates in a line in the hall of one of the palaces gave theophilus a golden apple and bade him give the apple to the lady of his choice he first approached a maiden named cassia or cassia who was not only the most beautiful of them all but had some repute for poetical talent how much evil has come through woman said the imperial prig improvising a greek verse yet how many better things have come from woman the young poetess modestly retorted in verse to her great mortification he passed on apparently displeased with her ready tongue and gave the apple to theodora cassia retired to a nunnery and to the composition of hymns and theodora was on whitsunday eight thirty married and crowned by the patriarch antony in the historic chapel of st stephen euphrosyne returned to her convent immediately after the coronation 
some authorities say that she was dismissed by theophilus others that she retired voluntarily it is not improbable that twenty years of religious life had made her a real nun at heart and she retired the moment she was relieved of those reasons of state which had interrupted her solitude during the thirteen years of the reign of theophilus the empress bore her children and confined herself to the gynaceum as a good empress should two sons and five daughters are assigned to her but as i said some if not all of these daughters of theophilus seem to have had an earlier mother maria is described as the youngest yet about the year eight thirty two two or three years after the marriage of theodora she married the commander alexis she died shortly afterwards Theodora had been piously educated in the orthodox faith, and it is piquant to read the approving language of the religious writers when they describe her duping her husband and breaking her oath to him. Cardinal Baronius, who is endorsed by the Bollandists, calls her the glory and ornament of holy womanhood, the unique example of exalted holiness in the East. We shall follow these distinguished authorities on sanctity with some hesitation when we afterwards find Theodora encouraging her son in vice in order that he may leave the administration to her and the clergy, and permitting him to hold drunken suppers with his mistress in her palace. But the worldly-minded biographer must be less enthusiastic than they even about her earlier actions. The first anecdote told of her is that the emperor one day noticed a heavily laden ship making for the port of Constantinople, and learned that it belonged to Theodora. He went down in great anger to the quay, and ordered the ship and its cargo to be burned. "'God made me emperor,' he cried, "'and my wife and Augusta has made me a ship-owner.' The Bollandists merely enlarge at this point on the naughtiness of princes who wish to monopolize trade for their own profit. But I think that a better defense of Theodora can be imagined. The young empress was probably blameless. It was a custom of courtiers to evade the duties on imports by trading in the name of the empress, and Theodora would hardly understand the matter sufficiently to refuse her name at once. The genial critic will also regard with some indulgence her petty mendacities in regard to the beloved images which she cherished in secret. One day her jester, or half-witted page, came suddenly into her room and found her embracing the forbidden statues. She told him that they were dolls, and Dendaris went at once to tell Theophilus of the pretty dolls with which his wife played in secret. Theophilus angrily started from the table and went to her room. The fool was mistaken, she cried. She and her maids had been looking in a mirror, and the boy had taken their images in the mirror to be dolls. Theophilus was not convinced. Little more could be learned from the page, who had been flogged by Theodora and told to hold his tongue about dolls, so that whenever Theophilus asked him, he said, Hush, Emperor, nothing about dolls but his young daughters also now began to speak of dolls, especially when they returned from visits to Theodora's mother, who had a palace at Gastria across the water. 
he learned from them that the old lady kept a chest full of pretty dolls which they were encouraged to kiss and embrace when they visited her the visits were immediately stopped and theodora was compelled to take the most sacred oaths that she would never favor the worship of images like irene she did so with mental reservation the long and vigorous reign of theophilus ended sadly unsuccessful in war indiscreet at home and at war with the clergy he wasted his talent in adding to the luxury of the court he found a wonderful mechanic and engaged him to fill the palace with expensive toys that seemed to enhance the imperial dignity before solomon's throne in the magnora palace were set lions of gilded bronze which would rise and roar at the approach of foreign ambassadors golden trees with golden singing birds invisible organs and all kinds of mechanical barbarities were added to the rare furniture of the palace new palaces also were built in the grounds a semicircular hall with roof of gold and doors of bronze and silver fountains which gave aromatic wine from their silver pipes on feast days summer palaces and chapels completely lined with the choicest marbles and mosaics a superb palace was raised on the asiatic shore in imitation of the caliph's palace at baghdad and the palace at Blackernay, in the cool northern suburb, now spread over a vast domain. But with all this facile splendor, Theophilus was conscious that he failed to hold the ever-pressing enemies of the empire, and he became morose and diseased. Theodora seems to have kept his affection to the end. In an earlier year she had detected him in criminal intimacy with one of her maids, and he had asked her forgiveness with great humility. His last act was a brutal murder in her interest. The noble Theophobos, who was married to the emperor's sister Helena, was in jail on some suspicion. Theophilus feared that he might aspire to the throne, and ordered the head of the unfortunate noble to be brought to him. He died in January 842, leaving the umpire to Theodora and her infant son, Michael. End of section 9